Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I see the world and sometimes my students struggling to connect the dots between science and their Christian faith, but that tension does not need to persist. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science and studying birds and in following Jesus. I help start Disciple Science to produce short videos and a podcast and other resources to help Christians see the compatibility of faith and science and to present nature as a way to encounter God in a whole new way. We believe that science and theology together can produce a fuller picture of reality and that science can inspire a strengthened walk of faith. Now let's get on with the podcast. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by one of my colleagues at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, Dr. Lee San Winslow. Dr. Winslow is a scientist and a scholar who's been a professor at the University of Northwestern for 18 years. Prior to coming to Northwestern, she was on faculty at Harvard University and Boston University. She's a Fulbright scholar with 11 books published, numerous journal articles, and has given presentations in over 10 different countries. Dr. Winslow is poised well to speak to science and theology. In addition to engaging students in the classroom, she is an internationally recognized marine biologist holding a BA in biology, a master's in cell biology, and a PhD in cell biology and biochemistry with over 25 years as a research scientist. However, Dr. Winslow is also an international scholar in theology with a decade of scholarly collaborations at Harvard Divinity School, Oxford University, and Yale University. She has a second master's in theology and religion and a second PhD in systematic theology. She's also an ordained minister in the Congregational Church and served in many ministries involving grief and loss, as well as spirituality and the environment. She has two new books in Science and Theology appearing in 2020. The first, A Trinitarian Theology of Nature and a Monograph Series through Princeton University. And the second, A Great and Remarkable Analogy through Yale University Press. Both books will be available later this spring. Lisanne, what a treat it is to have you join us today. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for almost 10 years now, Mm -hmm. or as long as I've been at Northwestern. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, please tell the listeners a little more about yourself outside of your academic credentials. What led you to this area of scholarship and to writing these most recent books? Sure. Well, first, let me say thank you, Dale, for inviting me to be on this podcast with you. I have the opportunity to talk to you about something that's been a passion of mine all mm-hmm. of my life. It started when I was a little girl. I did not grow <laughs> up in Minnesota. I grew up in New Jersey, <laughs> and uh, I was fortunate to have a pond in my backyard. And so I would go out as a seven or eight year old and kind of, you know, fish around in there and see pond life and frog eggs and whatnot. And I spent a lot of time in the outdoors as a kid. Mm. And I have to say that at that time, I felt something being outdoors, I didn't have the language or the faith yet to be able to put words to that or meaning to it, but I was drawn to it. And as I got older, I decided to major in biology and decide to pursue that love, that passion that I felt um, being out in the outdoors. Mm. Uh, I learned very quickly, however, that going into the sciences as rewarding and delightful as that was and is, um, science just was not equipped as um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, 
botanist mm-hmm. uh, at SUNY says, um, science was not equipped for the questions that I was asking. Mm-hmm. Um, the questions were bigger than science could touch. Mm-hmm. And one of my funny memories is when I was a graduate student at Rutgers University and I had been looking um, at sea urchin cells and the microscope mm-hmm. and watching the cells do some really extraordinary movements. It looked to me like the cells were making choice. They had kind of a consciousness. They would approach each other, they would pause, they would move over each other as if exploring one another. Then they would kind of go their separate ways, <laughs> right? And, and I was watching this and I thought, I wonder, you know, I had questions about their interaction with one another as cells. And I told this to my thesis advisor who very respectfully kind of sat back with a you know a finger on one chin you know and just kind of <laughs> you know doing the hmm yes i see and then when i was done and i said i'd like to develop a research program to exp- you know experiment this yeah. and he said um, get out of my office and i don't want to hear you talk like this again wow so I was conditioned <laughs> as a young scientist yeah. that there were certain questions that were not considered science. Yeah. And looking at cellular consciousness on a metaphysical level clearly was not. Yeah, sure. Now fast forward 25 years later when I was doing my second doctorate at the University of Aberdeen mm-hmm. and I began to talk to my athe- second thesis advisor about some of these questions that had been rattling through my mind for 25 years as a biologist. And not only was he thoroughly excited about these questions but worked with me for four years toward a doctoral degree in theology and science. Wow. So, um, you know, just a different context. And so my my faith journey and my scientific journey have led me to realize that there is no division between science and theology. They are one unified communication and expression of God. Hmm. Humans have artificially separated yeah, them. Yeah, right, yep, yep, that's great. Interesting. Now, so you have a couple of books coming out uh, this year, and one of them uh, is focusing on some of the, the the philosophy and theology of Jonathan Edwards, and I think many people w- might have recognized that name. It's remarkable. I actually uh, have a memory in high school of, of reading one of his sermons in a literature class. I bet I school. know which one it yes, was. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so... Uh, but he might not be familiar to everybody. So tell us a little sure. bit about Edwards and why he's a noteworthy theologian. Sure, absolutely. Um, Jonathan Edwards is considered one of the greatest American theologians. I mm-hmm. kind of chuckle at that because when Jonathan Edwards was in the United States, it was not the United States, yeah, it was right. the colonies, so it wasn't even America at yeah. that time. But I'm still considered British. Uh, But, you know, Edwards um, was a great thinker. He -hmm. was a theologian, a pastor, and a missionary. Mm -hmm. He has a corpus of writing that spans um, lots of avenues of theology and spirituality. Mm -hmm. He was the father of the Great Awakening Mm -hmm. in American Mm -hmm. religious history, which then that just uh, blossomed into the evangelical movement later on, which led to the Second Great Awakening uh, in American religious history. But Edwards was a profound thinker. And not only was Edwards a theologian and a pastor, but he was also an amateur scientist, mm. which in those days you could do that. Yeah, I okay. enjoyed reading about that in your book. Yeah, go, yeah so go on. Yeah, so he, he read prolifically. So he read Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. He read the science of his day. We have the corpus of books that were in Edwards' library, so we know that that he was reading about optics, he was reading about physics, he was reading about anatomy and zoology. And so Edwards engaged with the science of his time and he saw in 
the creation images and messages of divine origin that pointed him to knowledge of God that he saw reflected in the biblical scriptures. Wow. And so not only can we turn to Edwards as a theologian to inform us about the doctrine of God and the church and ecclesial matters and um, how to formulate our Christian faith, yeah. we can also look to Edwards really as a forerunner uh, as a as a scientific theologian, yeah, yeah, so he was a couple of years ahead of a couple hundred years Hundreds, ahead of his yes, time, two hundred and fifty right? yeah. years ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, it seems like we're starting to to see that develop now. Some some scientists that are a little bit more willing to explore those questions that perhaps your your first dissertation uh, supervisor wasn't interested in. Um, and some theologians that are going in the same direction, and which is which is where you are. And so now, uh, you know, we spend way too much time debating the when and how God created issue, mm -hmm. but this is really more about why God created. So what were mm -hmm. what were Edwards' thoughts about the purpose of why creation exists? Mm -hmm. I, I'll get to that in a second, but I want to yeah. comment on something that you just mentioned about yeah. scientists, yep. right? And so as scientists, we're in the lab, and we're developing our hypotheses, we're doing our experiments, we're publishing our papers, and so we, we follow the scientific method. Mm. What has happened in the past hundred years with this major explosion of molecular scientific evidence and understanding of how the world works on a cellular, on a molecular, and a submolecular quantum level in yep. physics and biology and biochemistry and cell biology, what's happening is that m many scientists are coming up against a brick wall. Yeah, yeah, what right. the Enlightenment promised us, the Enlightenment promised us that science would solve all of our problems, okay? It would give us all of the answers that we need yeah. for happiness, for you know health, for uh, prosperity, for understanding. and. We have come up against uh, this brick wall in the sense that science has delivered a lot, but it can't deliver what it promised. And mm -hmm. so even many Nobel Prize winning physicists are saying, you know, when it comes to the foundational level of matter, um, all we keep getting are descriptions of things. We can't yeah. explain how things are the way they are. Yeah. And so many physicists are saying we need to come back to a theistic explanation because the naturalist explanations just don't work. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Edwards fits into this. Edwards takes the question um, out of uh, the realm that it's been in for 150 years, which is we want to understand how science and religion can sort of fit together. And Edwards is saying no, that if we look at the, if we defer to um, the principle of sufficient reason, which was Leibniz, philosopher mm -hmm. named Leibniz, um, it says that we, we want to defer to the um, inference to the best explanation possible. Mm -hmm. yep. And so Edwards changes that question for us. He says, you know, maybe it's not about how things got to be the way they are, um, but maybe it's more about, you know, um, coming back to a teleological understanding of why the creation is here, why. Yeah. And if you take a theistic explanation for that in terms of a divine being, God, um, why would God create to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the teleology for that's those that the, aren't familiar with that yeah, term. That's yeah, that's the teleological aspect yeah. of why, you know, why that why there is something rather than nothing, which is the basic fundamental principle in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so Edwards takes takes the question and turns it kind of on its on its back and he says, wait a minute, let's take a step back. Um, first we want to know what would incite a creator to make a creation, a yeah. universe with yeah sentient beings, yep. you know? <laughs> and so at the time, Edwards, um, he was facing some 
opposition at that time. Uh, some of the current thinking around the turn of the sort of the 18th century and up to the mid 18th century was well God we know why God created God was lonely you know God mm. was lonely and just with the angels and so you know God <laughs> wanted more you know yep. creatures well well that has a theological problem because that flies in the face of divine perfection mm-hmm. if God needs something then God is not God yeah. okay well then some of the other you know philosophies were God created because he wanted to create creatures and make them happy Give creatures yep. happiness, yep. right? Well, that you know, problem with that, as David Hume teaches us, is that yeah. people are not really happy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's a lot of suffering in the world, right? Yep. So, if God's plan was to create so that people could be happy, that was a miserable failure, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, Edward says, okay, let's take a step back and, and try to see what was the end. What was the end in mind that God had? Why did God create this, this creation? And Edwards came up with a brilliant solution that solved all of the current dilemmas of the day. We retain God's perfection. Uh, It's not about humans' happiness per se, um, but it's really about God's glory. Mm. Now, Mm. not God's glory as a display. We can go to the Rocky Mountains and say, wow, okay, that's part of the splendor of God's glory. But no, Edward says that the end for which God created came out of God's disposition to externalize God's self. God Mm. wants to diffuse himself, multiply himself, pour himself out, and externalize the goodness and that intra-Trinitarian love that is who God is. God wants to pour that love out of himself and to pour that love out into creatures who are designed to receive it Mm. so that when they receive that divine outpouring of love, not only can they receive it as a a vessel, but they can then delight in it. Hmm. And when they delight in that beauty and that eminence and excellence of who God is, well then that returns the glory right back to its source. So I like this analogy that Dr. Schultz and I talk about in our classes is, so for example, I know you really well, Dale, I know you like birds, right? (laughs) And so let's (laughs) say I see this really wonderful brand new book, you know, on you know, North American bird species or something, and I buy this for you, I wrap it and I give it to you, and you open it and you're like, wow, I've wanted this for so long and now I've got it and like, thank you, that was so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I give you a gift just because I care about you, you receive it and you delight in it, well, how do I feel now? I feel great, I feel like, wow, that was such a, you know, great interaction, right? So on a smaller scale, that's what Edwards was getting at. He said, God created because God wanted to show and demonstrate and pour out his love to creatures who could receive it. Mm -hmm. And then when they receive it and they delight in it, it's going to enrich their lives. It's going to make their lives um, deeper and more meaningful Mm -hmm. and give them power. It doesn't explain the problem of evil and suffering in that theology. That's <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a podcast for another day that we topic. can yeah, visit, right. okay? Because yeah. it's an important one, yeah. right? And so their suffering is involved, okay? And we'll talk about that hopefully in a few minutes in terms of the suffering in nature, yeah. right? But um, suffering is a part of the human experience, but union with the creator is the answer to it, yeah. right? Hmm. And so that was Edward's contribution to the idea of why God created nature the way it is. Yeah. That's such a different approach, I think, from the the mainstream view that you know God created to provide for us and to make us happy. That that approach, because I think, it what that leads to is this idea that if something doesn't make us happy, then it has no purpose. Right. And for too many years, we've 
put things into the good and bad bins, and we tried to get rid of the bad. Right. You know, we're like, oh, these things are no good for us, so let's just dismiss them. But this idea that the purpose of creation is to mm. be a revelation of God, to be a, mm-hmm. a blessing of understanding and insight, it's just fundamentally so different it's a different from, way I think, of looking the message at it. that many of us may have been raised on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true, because what happens is it turns the table again, upside down, instead of human beings being the center, Mm. trying to find God or find meaning, we see the creators in control. The creator is is reaching to us, constantly reaching to us through the creation. So Edwards took his his Calvinist lineage. You know, Calvin, his doctrine of creation was twofold. And unfortunately, in contemporary theology, only one aspect of Calvin's doctrine of creation has been predominant. Mm -hmm. Edwards picked out the second, and I'll explain them both of them in just a second, Mm -hmm. but that went dormant in theological writing for 250 years. We've just recovered (laughs) it now, okay? So, so, So Calvin, he said, well, the reason why God created the whole earth and the universe and the ecosystems and plants and molecules and everything else of course, Calvin didn't know there were molecules at that yeah. time. We know now. <laughs> yeah. um, was, it, it was the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, the earth and, you know, the universe. It's just the stage upon which the drama of redemption unfolds. Yep. Okay. So, you know, God knew he wanted to make a creation and this was, you know, the, the fall was going to happen and then Jesus was going to redeem, the, you know, um, humanity. So we need a stage. We need a place to do it in. Yeah. And so that um, really denigrated the role of the creation to almost nothing. Yeah. It's just the platform, yeah. okay? And then, I know Calvin also says, well, you know, and because of the fall, creation is corrupt, yeah. all right? And so that stuck in most you know, theological literature. But Edwards saw one other small aspect of Calvin that really kind of goes into like the, the cobwebs of the annals of the, of the institutes of the Christian faith <laughs> that he wrote. And that is that Calvin said that Nature is also the mirror of God's glory. Yeah, right. How yeah. can you not say it's all over the Bible, right? Yeah. It's all over yeah. Scripture. Yeah. So Calvin says, no, okay, so here's this, this stage upon which we're carrying out the drama of living life as humans, but also there's, a, there's an, an element of God that comes through nature, as the Scriptures tell us, right? All the creation declares the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Edwards picked that out, and he said, let's look at that. Let's see what nature is telling us. Because we know from Psalm 19 that it says, you know, the you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yeah. You know, creation is proclaiming something. It's yeah. calling out. And so what is nature telling us? And so there's a lineage that Edwards was operating in. Began with August well, it began with the psalmist, let's start there. Yeah. <laughs> and then it comes up through through St. Augustine, who said, Well, you know, Everything that God creates has to have the fingerprint of God in it somewhere, and so he called that vestiges of the Trinity yeah. in mm. nature, in mm. the natural world, right? And so it kind of comes up through historical theology, where in um, the scholastic, you know, Thomas Aquinas and Saint Bonaventure, we're seeing, well, yeah, you know, God can be known through what has been made because the Bible says He can, okay? And so Edwards takes that lineage and takes that nugget from Calvin and says you know what, when I go out into the woods and I see a tree with its branching, you know, the branches going Mm -hmm. out into all directions, like that to me reminds me of the church, of how Christ is the trunk 
And we take the message and we're like branches and we spread that all over the world, yeah. right? Yeah. Or he would say, well, I look at the sun and the sun is continually pouring out heat and light. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of God's love, yeah. which is constantly being poured out you know, to give me light for the mind, intellect, but also presence of the heart, right? So he's seeing these analogies in nature that point to biblical truths about God. Yeah. And so Edwards then believed that those were those were intentional, right? That this thing was created to teach us that message. Correct. Is that am I getting that right? Yes. And so there's two ways to look at this. One is that human beings are going out and they're seeing um, the Rocky Mountain Range and they're saying, "Oh, God is my rock. I get that. Yeah. I'm going to use it as a metaphor." Yeah. Or that God intentionally created the rock. Yeah to speak about something of himself, so that when we see the Rocky Mountain Range and our life is falling apart, we know if I cling to that, it's not moving. It's strong, it's bigger than me, right? And so there's a different vantage point. Mm -hmm. It's saying, aha, it's not that humans go out and search through or find metaphors so that we're trying to figure out who God is. It's the opposite. God intentionally creates by embedding these messages in order to communicate with us yeah yep you know i've been since i read your book i've been letting this roll around in my brain and it gives me a new vision of of for the inspiration of scripture you know that these metaphors that are found throughout the old and new testament are maybe not just sort of what the you know the author was gazing at as they were uh, dictating or, or or thinking about what they wanted to to say of God, but that somehow the Spirit inspired this understanding, right, of light and water and rock and all of the different metaphors that are used to describe God. Is that, is that, do you think that's a fair approach, or am I going off the rails there? That is, you're on the rails. That's the rails, okay? <laughs> so the idea is that when the psalmist says, I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? Yeah. That was a moment of divine revelation. Yeah. That God is revealing something to that person about God's self. So that's exactly it. So Mm. instead of it being a metaphor, so a metaphor, if you just look at it from a literary perspective, right? A metaphor is an example of something that doesn't necessarily have to retain the same meaning, okay? Mm. Um, So she was like a lion, Okay, well, clearly yeah. she didn't have teeth and she wasn't roaring, maybe she right. was, I yeah. don't know, but you know, but it's <laughs> yeah. it's we're using something as an but an analogy an comes from the Greek. Analogia is a mathematical term. Hmm. It means proportion. So, an analogy means you've got something in one proportion and then another thing that's pointing to it in a lesser proportion, yeah. right? And so Edwards was saying, this is an analogy that we think that the earth is the reality and maybe God's, we use analogies to understand God. Edwards said it's the opposite. The ultimate reality is God. This is the analogy. The creation is the analogy pointing to the reality. Yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. So what Edwards did, this is the brilliance, is that he took a biblical theme which is called typology. Mm-hmm. Now typology is a weird word because we don't use it today much, yeah, yeah. Um, but but we all know it if we're Christians or if we're believers. We know that things in the Old Testament point to things in the New Testament, right? So Jesus was a kind of an Adam, yeah. right? Or the blood of bulls and goats pointed us to what was coming later, which was the blood of Christ, right? Yeah. So the type would be the Old Testament image or person or event mm-hmm. that God intended to teach us to point to the actual 
which was fulfilled in the New Testament, right? But there's, yep. there's hundreds and hundreds. There's a whole system of theology called topology where scholars go through the Old Testament and look for these messages God put in the Old Testament mm-hmm. to point us to the fulfillment in Christ and the church and the new, okay? Edwards took that system of biblical typology and applied it to nature. Yeah. And he said, okay, guess what? God also put messages in every single thing in nature, their yeah. types, and they're pointing us to the antitype of God and the spirit realm. Yeah. And those truths are there for us. We can't find them on our own. They have to be revealed to us. So it's God reaching to the human heart and mind in what Edwards calls yeah. the divine and supernatural light, yeah. which illuminates us to these divine principles. Yeah. So you say we can't discover them on our own. Does that mean we shouldn't go looking? That's a good question. Scripture's really clear. Ask and you will find. Seek and you will knock, right? Anyone who searches for me, God says, will find me. So it's that heart of searching Mm -hmm. which opens up the human heart and mind and soul to allow for the revelation to come. God is wait. He wants us to be searching. He wants us to be you know, investigating ways of knowing him, and then he reveals to those who seek. Yeah, so it's both opening up our hearts and questioning what's the meaning behind this object and allowing the Spirit to to guide us in that process. Is that and sometimes approach? it's even simpler than that. I'll give yeah. an example. I think examples help. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so one time I was in my pastor's study and a woman came in, her life was a total shambles, right? Mm-hmm. So son was drug addict, husband was off womanizing, divorce was imminent, uh, she had no money, she had not worked in 20 years. Like the oh, life was yeah, a wreck, yeah. okay? A total disaster, like the wind was blowing through her life. And I'm listening and empathetic and I'm, you know, and I'm going, God, this woman needs more than platitudes right now. Like, I can't just say Jesus is all you need. This yeah. woman is in crisis. And I'm like, what do I say? And I looked at my pastor's window, this is true, and I see in, in, the, um, in the yard next to the pastor's study at my window, there was this gorgeous garden of Minnesota wild grasses. You know the real tall ones? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They, they kind yeah. of sway. And it was a really blustery fall day. And the wind was just whipping these grasses, like a whole hedgerow of them, just whipping yeah. them. You can get the image, right? These grasses are being whipped back and forth. And I look out there, and immediately it came to me, tell her this is her life. Those grasses are not gonna be pulled out of the ground. They're anchored by their roots. The storms can come, the winter can come, but those grasses are held in the soil because of their deep roots. Mm-hmm. And her deep root is her commitment to me. Mm-hmm. And so I said, come look out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this perfect moment. So there was, so the Holy Spirit can do these things to us. I wasn't searching, yeah. I was waiting. I'm saying, God help in this moment of pastoral care. Like how can I bring something of meaning? And she looks out the window and she goes, I, those are my favorite things in Minnesota are those grasses. And I've seen that happen so often and I get it. How did I know? I didn't know anything, right? (laughs) I don't know that she likes this. I didn't know that this was a metaphor that God had used in her life before, right? And so these images in nature that have spiritual meaning and spiritual depth um, are happening all the time around us. So Edward saw if I can keep going with Edwards. So yeah. he saw, okay, we can go out into nature, a walk through the woods, right? Just you know, being in your backyard, or if you go on vacation, you go to the beach, whatever. Like we can be out in nature and have divine experiences. Mm-hmm. But Edwards also saw images of the creator in the scientific mechanisms that he was studying in these science books that he was reading. Mm-hmm. 
And so not so he had a twofold method of understanding what God put into the creation. The twofold method Edwards was operating on. Now Edwards did not formulate this. He had a notebook that he just wrote in like a diary. Mm-hmm. And he called it images or shadows of divine things. And he just, when he would get a revelation about something, he would come home and just kind of jot it down. Hmm. There was 212 entries in that little hmm. little personal notebook. Whether yeah. Edwards was going to you know, make this into something more you know, rigorously theological later, we don't know. He didn't have, he didn't outline a method like he normally does, okay? So he would normally outline his methodology, we would understand his metaphysics, but here he's just writing stuff down like in a diary. So, but from this diary, we do see his method at work. Yeah, yeah. He was a very methodological thinker and, mm-hmm. and processor and writer. And so we see he's got two aspects of this understanding of the theology of nature. Mm-hmm. One is that you can just go out in the creation, even if you don't believe in God at all, it doesn't matter. You're gonna feel something in the creation. Dale, I have done an experiment for 10 years and I've stopped now because I can't get any other, there's no other data points but one. Everywhere I go, and I'm a talker and you can tell, um, everywhere I go I talk to people on the line at the food store or if I'm at the gas station pumping gas or the dentist, wherever I might start talking to people. And I say, you know, I'm doing a study, can I ask you a really odd question? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, sure. Okay, have you ever felt God or the divine anywhere? Have you ever felt God, the presence of God? And they'd be like thinking about it. Yeah, where was that? Now I've had over 600 responses in 10 years and I've dumb done every single time, not one alternate answer. Well, you know, I was up in the Boundary Waters yeah. or I was, you know, I was in Mexico at the beach or I mean, in the woods, in the forest. Every response I've gotten from people is always, when I ask them, have you ever felt the presence of God and where was it? It's always in nature, yeah. every time. Not one person said, oh, it's in this powerful worship service. Huh. Not that they're bad, we do feel yes. God there too, okay. <laughs> but pro- impromptu, yeah. just gut reaction, people every time tell me someplace in nature where they've been. Mm. So there's something that happens to the human creature throughout all time period and throughout all cultures that have reported a numinous sense of the transcendent divine, mm-hmm. the transcendent in nature. Yep. So we're built for this. Yep. Doesn't matter if you know God or not, doesn't matter. You're gonna meet God there, whether you call it God or not, doesn't yeah. matter, that's what you're meeting. Yeah. That's the ontological reality that Edwards is putting forth. Yeah. And so we have this, these experiences in, cre- in the creation, and God can speak to us through that. And then Edwards saw this other side where he's reading science books and he's saying, wow, well, you know, if, if I look at, you know, the mechanisms in optics, or I look at the pumping of the human heart, or I look at the development of an embryo, he's seeing spiritual truths yeah. in these scientific mechanisms. Yep. So it's a twofold methodology. Yep. And I think what you and I have both discussed in, in other um, times, and what you alluded to earlier, is that science modern science teaches us not to ask that question, right? right. Like I see this heart pumping and you're not supposed to ask, what does this mean? You're supposed Mm -hmm. to ask, how does it work? You know, and what's going wrong? And those, so, and this is, um, will be very uncomfortable for some scientists to ask these sorts of questions. It it is for (coughs) me, I have to admit that even though I've been a Christian my whole life, I still, it it takes a little Mm -hmm. bit of, 
you know, convincing myself that it's okay to ask this question right. of the birds that I'm studying or the ecosystem that I'm that I'm pondering. Um, how do you, for people that are, you know, maybe interested in this, open to it, but are are skeptical, and I think many people will be because it just science just has not been used this way in the recent mm-hmm. couple centuries. How do we? How do we approach this from from the a, 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 a desire for this to to be real mm-hmm. for these messages to be embedded, but without the ability to just kind of let everybody create their own meaning from mm-hmm. from everything they see? Mm-hmm. So I think that the question is: Is this falsifiable? How do you mm-hmm. approach this from a, a some sort of rigor uh, based in our understanding of God? Great question, and that. Um, is the important question is you have to have criteria, right? So you've got to have some way of verifying. Um, That's the sort of the scientist side of of me. As I came to this, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, can anybody just say, oh, you know, this this is what I learned about God from looking at the trees and whatever, and how do you know that it's really a divine revelation? so this 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 is a very packed question. I'm going to start yeah. <laughs> for. I'm going to come back to the the methodology and the criteria in a minute. But I have to take a step back because, first of all, when you think about a theology of nature, um, it doesn't challenge what science is doing at all. Right. 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 Science Ad, does what science to does. It. Yeah. Right. Not taking away. Yep. yep. Right. So basically, science does what science does. Right. Science is going to give us all the mechanisms. Science is going to tell us. You know how things work. It's going to give us the, that that list of descriptions. It's going to give us the list of steps. It's going to give us the processes. Science, do it right. Science does what it does. Keep doing it, scientists of the world, and me and you, Dale. As <laughs> scientists, we keep doing our work. That's why I still have a lab, even though I'm a theologian and a pastor. I'm a scientist. I still have a lab. I have research students. Scientists keep doing it. They need to give us the information. Yeah. Scientists don't have to believe in God. They don't have to ascribe to the theology of nature. They can think it's all hokey. It doesn't matter. They can just just do let science do what it does. Mm-hmm. Emil Brunner, German, you know, Swiss yeah. theologian yeah. in the 1930s, said, science can do what science does, let it do what it does best. Whether it knows it or not, or cares or not, doesn't matter. Because science is in the service of God. Whether it wants to be or not, it doesn't matter. It just is. Science is revealing to us the ways that God acts. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yep. Okay? Yep. So science can do what science does, right? What we do with it, now there are people in the world who are craving a deeper spirituality. They're craving a union with creator that is beyond judgment and beyond ritual. Mm-hmm. Religion has served us so well in so many ways, but religion, organized religion, has let a lot of people down. The the de-churched now is one of the fastest growing groups. Spiritual but not religious is actually a box you can check. You know, Catholic, you know, Hindu, Buddhist, you know, Protestant, spiritual not religious. It's one of the boxes, okay? (laughs) It's a fast growing group of people. This tells us something as a church, right? As people of faith, regardless, it tells us that there are people out there in the world that want to know something real and authentic. Mm. And we live in a scientific age. The scientific vernacular is part of our vocabulary. If I said the word DNA, everybody's gonna know it has something to do with the cell. It's gonna have something to do with genetics, right? And so scientific terminology, they're household, this is household words. We live in a scientific age and people want to engage their faith 
in a dynamic and a new way that engages the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. So many people say that religion is outdated. Religion doesn't understand the times, right? And so how do we make this applicable and relevant? And so we have the scientific understanding of the world that most people are pretty savvy about, at least on some level. And then we have this need as a species to get outside. Mm -hmm. We are in a box. Right? So an ecologist friend of mine illuminated to me that as humans, we used to be you know, out in the natural world and we were probably carnivores. Now we are living in a box and we are uh, seed eaters now, okay? Because we eat a lot of corn, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, right, okay? bread, yeah. right? Right, exactly. So we are now seed eating you know, dwellers inside of, so we live in a box, that's our house. We get into the moving box, which is the car that takes us to the other box, which is our work. And so, and we're you know, so um, media centric and we're on devices all the time that now there's actually been a disorder that has been cataloged in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is called Nature Deficit Disorder. Yeah, Richard Louvre. Yes, Richard, book, that's right. Yeah, Last Child in the Woods. That's yep. right. Yep. So, Last Child in the Woods. So, Nature Deficit Disorder. Physicians are writing prescriptions to people 30 minutes outside three yep. times a week. Yep. Okay. We need to get back out into the world. And so, it's for our physiology, it's for our lungs, it's for our muscles, it's Preach for that. It. Yeah. But yeah. it's also for our spirit. Yep. And there's, there's a connection, there's a metaphysical connection between the being that is human and the natural world. And that is, to me, the divine revelation and the knowledge and glory of God that is in the creation that we are tuned to. Yep. You feel better when you're outside. Yep. And so to people who are saying, well, is this even real? Is this valid to do this? Read my books, because there's all of the justifications <laughs> in there. Right. But the short of it is that people need this. They need to come at their faith from a different angle, one that is more authentic, that brings us back to our literal grassroots, yeah. okay, mm -hmm. and gets us back <laughs> into the creation. And so how do we validate this as a method? And so um, this comes to the criteria aspect yeah, of it. Right. So Edwards, as we said, was operating, um, he was writing these things in a notebook, but Edwards was also very systematic. He had written a treatise on biblical theology, on biblical typology, and he had criteria and methods he was using to do the biblical typology, the Old Testament and New Testament parallels. Mm -hmm. And so he was using those same criteria in Shadows of Divine Things in an informal way. So what we do in the book is um, I list a set of four criteria that we have to follow because we don't want to just have this be some kind of random willy-nilly, you know, we need to know that we're grounded in something that is actually real and yep. from the Lord and yep. from God speaking to us. Interestingly enough, I'll read the criteria for you in just a moment, but we do this for our biblical studies as well, don't mm -hmm. we? Yeah, right, yep. Okay, so there's a parallel here. Remember, it, you know, St. Bonaventure said, we have two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And by the way, which came first? Yeah, nature. The yeah. book of nature yeah. did, right, <laughs> exactly. And so what we see in God's revelation in scripture, if I say to you, God gave me this verse, and let's say it's one of the Psalms or Isaiah or something Jesus said, right, you're gonna immediately as a, as a discerning Christian and a discerning believer, you're gonna listen to this and you're gonna say, does this have credibility or was this pulled out of a hat somewhere, okay? So we do this with scripture all the time. When someone says, God spoke to me or I have a revelation from God or whatever it is, we are discerning as a body, right? Our church, our faith communities, our churches, even our denominations will tell us what's valid or invalid in terms of revelation, okay? And so we do this with scripture all the time. So it's the same 
kind of idea, it's a parallel with revelations to the natural world, is that we're going to need to be discerning as well. So mm-hmm. we need to yep. have yep. we need to have accountability people, accountability partners, people of faith, small groups, people that we're involved in, that we can say, hey, I was out for a walk in the woods and this is what came to me, and then someone can feed back in a prayerful way using the scriptures as our guide. That's the key, right? So so in order for something to be what we call a type anti-type construct, so something that God embedded into the natural world for us to get a spiritual message out of. And by the way, there's a terrific book too, um, Alistair McGrath, mm-hmm. um, A Fine-Tuned Universe, which was his um, a transcript, a book that came out of his 2009 Gifford Lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, he really talks about these emblazoned messages that, that are intentionally put into the creation by God to speak to us of something of the Creator. And so the four criteria are one, in a type anti-type construct, um, the factual nature of the item in question has to be there. So it's not a random metaphor. So in the example where I talked about the grasses and the roots, that was an actual factual organism yeah. that actually had roots and roots ground you. So that's a factual entity that points to a spiritual truth, okay? If I said to you, um, this is a good one, I've heard, I used to be Pentecostal out. You know, for those of you um, <laughs> Pentecostals or recovering Pentecostals out there, um, uh, you know, we used to say, oh, that, that church service was so beautiful, like the Holy Spirit was like a sweet smelling aroma. Yeah. That's a metaphor. Yeah. Unless there was an actual fragrance that you smelled in the sanctuary, um, that would be a metaphor. So that you lose the fact part of it when it's a metaphor. A type, you're retaining the factual nature. Okay, yep, okay? that makes sense. So you have to retain the factual nature of the item in question. So um, the meaning and use of the word or the person or the object or situation does not change. It's only different in, in its relation. Yep. And that's the yep. that's okay. the proportionality. That's the analogia. And that's where science retains what it does, right? Science exactly. is explaining things, and it's just it's not taking away from that. It's just adding something to it. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, there must be a rigorous correspondence between the type and its corresponding anti-type. So it's not just a mere resemblance. Like it has to really fit. You know, I mean, certain things in scriptures that I have heard people say are really a big stretch on yeah. what the meaning of the scripture was, and you're like, I don't <laughs> think Jesus meant that, right? So so it's the same thing here. Like it's got to have an actual resemblance. Yeah. And this is Edward's words. Ed, Edward says there has to be a semblance, yep. a resemblance of the thing. It can't be, you can't push it too far. And this is where you need accountability, I think, with um, a community of faith that does this together. Like my church, we do this together. And so we can bounce it off each other and say, well, that's kind of a stretch. Yeah. You know? Well, it's almost like a peer review process. I mean, you talked about how science is, and theology are unified and we've split them apart, but it almost requires that same thing. Like we do with scripture, one person can't just define what scripture means. We have to... Because then we have cults. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our cults come about. Thank right. you. That's probably the origin of all of our many denominations is, is debates over thinking that one person knows right. what it means. And that makes perfect... I, I think that gives comfort to us to say, this is this sounds great, but aren't people just going to come up with their crazy ideas? Right. And this, this brings us back to the Proverbs where it says there's abundance of wisdom in many counselors, yeah. right? And so we're relying upon that sort of, um, that body of believers that we want, you know, any kind of spirituality, regardless of what it is, we always need those others. Even if it's one other person who's a spiritual partner that you can say, you know, 
I, you know, this is what I'm going through spiritually. Can you know? And you, what we we do this together. We're not in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? So there has to be some kind of a resemblance, and that that kind of helps to have that body of others. Um, there also has to be a systematized prefiguring, and so. Um, like the Old Testament prefigures the New Testament. And so in, in Edwards, the types that are embedded on earth prefigure or point to spiritual truths mm-hmm. that are present in the spirit realm okay, that help us to live out this life yep. to prepare us for the spirit. So that's the chronological. That's the Old Testament, New Testament. This is incarnational creation versus heavenly realm spirituality. Okay. Right. So we're learning something about another part of um, God's being and God's design that we don't have access to. Yeah. He put the messages here to point us to that. So that's the prefiguring. And then uh, the type antitype, it has to convey a truth um, that's affirmed by Scripture. Right. Okay, yeah. so Scripture is always our guide. So to say to my friend, this woman, you know, you are rooted in God. That is a biblical truth, right? So we are, you know, Paul, the apostle tells us that, you know, we are grounded in Christ. We are anchored in Christ. Our hope is our anchor, right? So there's lots and lots of scriptures that would affirm that spiritual truth. So we're not coming up with something new. The important thing is that the the, the theology of nature is not coming up with a new revelation. It's one unified revelation of God. Scripture affirming Christ, nature affirming the principles of the of the spirit of god mm-hmm. so it's one unified revelation it's not you have an either or yeah great yeah this is, that's really helpful i think to, because that's first time i heard you talk about this i said that sounds so appealing but i have to be a little bit skeptical but it, th- those that framework gives us something to oh dismiss things that are a little bit too far out of left field or don't align with our understanding of who god is based on on scripture and, and theology and so this, this gives us something to, to work on and move forward with and and criticize and create something more meaningful that i think people can have confidence in and that just is that's so wonderful now i have to um uh, address one other big question i suspect people will have um and i i have a sense for this and i think you do too but the audience needs to hear it in, in that when we when we um, study the natural world, if we say that science is the study of how God acts, we frequently encounter things that are not appealing to us. Yeah. We we see death and we see suffering and we see, uh, you know, un, sometimes just unimaginable pain uh, in in human terms and also in non-human terms. How how would Edwards? How would this approach help us wrestle with that aspect of God's creation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is one of the. Um the sticky points, I think, about this theology is that um, w- when we think about the beauty of the natural world, it's so easy, right? It's yeah. so easy to <laughs> yeah. see, you know, these wonderful images of God in nature and uh, and how we feel by those beautiful, like seeing a rainbow. Like, why does a smear of color across the sky do something for you? Um, so it's easy to see that, but let's face it, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. Yeah. It's not. And so we have these areas of the natural world that almost make us question God's goodness, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you know, we see uh, you know, wildfires that you know, ravage whole ecosystems, right? We see, you know, if you stumble across in the forest, you know, a decaying animal with maggots all over it, we recoil from that. It's disgusting to us, right? And so there's, there's death in nature. You know, I love this. I ask my students this all the time. Okay, you're watching the discussion 
Discovery Channel, and it's the you know it's the one where the lion you're on the savanna in Africa, and the lion is lying in wait, and there's the gazelle, and then the chase goes on. Which one are you rooting for? <laughs> well, it really depends on the narrator because if it's the poor lion that hasn't eaten in three weeks, you're going get it, get it. But if it's this you know if it's the story of the gazelles and the horrible predator, you're like run, run, run. So like so nature you know nature has these things you know and you, we see these images we see these shows on TV where you know the, the you know the pack of hyenas is eating you know the, the wildebeest and it's alive being eaten alive mm. right and so we, we recoil from these images in nature how do we say okay god what's the message there and so the message is in my Edwards didn't say anything about this by the way and so thanks Jonathan Edwards you know you left me to, <laughs> to handle that one on my own right that and all the molecular world too by right, the way yeah. which we've done uh, but you know but so what I what I have um, come to realize is that the story the message of the gospel is not a pretty story mm. yep. anyone who has seen any kind of um, you know, movie during Holy Week, for example. You know, we're coming up, you know, to that part yeah. of the season now in, in this time of the year um, where we're going to have these shows on TV where it shows a, it depicts a crucifixion scene. We can't look at it, right? And so even, you know, the prophet Isaiah informs us that the Messiah is going to be bruised for our iniquities, right? He's mm -hmm. wounded for our sins. He in, in Isaiah 6, it says that, you know, he, he's such a monstrosity that we can't even look upon it with our eyes, okay? It's gruesome to look at. Um, it almost seems like it's God's cruelty to let his son die on a cross, right? Just like, so we, we, we question God's goodness sometimes when we see these things in nature. Um, and sometimes we might even say we're questioning God's goodness and letting his son die on the cross, but we know there's a greater plan, right? So it doesn't end at the cross. It ends in the resurrection, right? When, when we see Christ dies for our sins and then, you know, is resurrected in victory and defeats death once and for all in the glorious story that we as believers um, love so much. It's our life. And so what God, that story was so crucial. In fact, it's the only most important story of human history is the salvation of humankind by Jesus Christ if you're a person of faith. And so God puts that story in every layer of the creation. All of the gruesomeness that we see is a type is pointing to the anti-type of the crucifixion. Mm. All of the death that we see in nature doesn't stop in death. Every right. tree yep. that falls decays, adds nutrients to the soil, and then you get, you know, something else comes New up. Life. New yeah. life. Right. And so the, the life, God created the world and the universe even we see this in cosmology. Even stars have a birth, a life, and a death in a supernova, right? Mm. So birth, life, death and regeneration resurrection it is part of every single fabric of the creation from quarks all the way up to galaxies yeah. and that so that is the important story we see the story of redemption in every single element of the creation mm. um i don't know if that no it does it's 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 good i think you're right that that the message of the gospel that we emphasize is the good news right of the salvation but what we forget to say is what we need salvation from which is the the ugly parts of our lives and the ugly parts of our of of our societies and and i think the message that that god doesn't 
create the evil, but God is capable of doing good works from those those awful things. Is, right, is and it becomes remarkable. a type, anti-type construct. Yep. It's like God put that in there to show us that even though we go through a lot of suffering in our lives, lives are cyclical. So you might be going through a really rough time in your life right now, and you might think, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But trust me, in a year from now or some other time period in the future, you're going to look back on this and say, wow, okay, I really got through. And so the the suffering in nature is a type. It points to the anti-type of God's working, his plan, his purpose. Everything in nature has a plan and a purpose. You and I are looking at a window right now, and there are people all over the world in different ecosystems. Look out your window. We're looking at very bare trees. Everything's covered in snow. But we know it's not going to stay like this, that in the spring, all those fallen leaves from last year, they're decomposing right now. And they're going to decompose and they're going to add nutrients to the soil so that all those beautiful crocuses and daffodils and tulips are going to come up right in, you know, through the soil and the new leaves are going to come out. And so there's a plan and a purpose that God has through suffering and through what we consider um, the difficult parts of nature to view, to look at, to be a part of. There's all a plan and a purpose for good Mm -hmm. that's embedded in it, and nature reminds us of that every day. That's that's wonderful. Thank you, Lisa. And I think this is, again, approach that's going to be very novel to people, and some people might be a little bit uncomfortable with it, but very appealing because it it gives meaning and understanding to to what you said that we all feel. something when we spend time out, outside and many of us put words to it and uh, if we have religious background and we say I sense the uh, God through my walks in the woods and um, you know people in, from a secular audience have an entirely different me- um, position to it but they're stuck in the same place trying to explain why they have a spiritual experience when they go out in nature and we now can uh, move forward and trying to uh, create more specific meaning out of that and have the right language for uh, for telling what, what God is reaching out to us with and the, the message well, we're trying to get And you know, Dale, this all stems from God's absolute and infinite love for us. Yeah. If you think about the love that God is, and I call my pet name for God is the love that created, right? Mm-hmm. So the love that yeah. created poured all of this knowledge of God's self into the creation because we're engaging with it every day. And I will tell you, listeners out there, this goes all the way down to the molecular and submolecular and subatomic levels of creation. Yeah, you're a cell biologist that you're in roots, yeah. Yes, and we have done this for over a dozen mechanisms. Two of them are published, one in each book. One is the um, ionic bond formation of sodium chloride, and the other one is the gorgeous, gorgeous story, which is the um, mammalian visual system in the mammalian eye involving the protein rhodopsin at the molecular level. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not a scientist, read it. I've had lots of students read this who are not bio majors, you know, who are, (laughs) you know, just smart people, and they're like, wow, okay, I think I get this. Mm-hmm. And so um, this, these messages of the creator go all the way down to the fundamental elements of creation. And I will tell you a very quick story. My um, second doctoral advisor at the University of Aberdeen, I had been explaining this to him about for about a year. And he was kind of understanding it, you know, kind of getting it in, in our conversations. Um, he was kind of getting, you know, latching onto the idea that in the molecules, there's images of God in the molecules. And he was kind of getting it, but not getting yeah. it. And this one day we were on Skype. I'll never forget this. This is a theologian man of God for 25 years. And we're on Skype. And I said to him, Philip, don't you understand that God, not only is God so infinitely wise 
and masterfully creative that he could create all of the molecules for life to exist and all of the processes and structures and biochemical pathways and all that complexity that science delivers mm-hmm. to us, like those molecules are shaped a certain way. They react a certain way under certain temperatures and ionic conditions and we have ecosystems and we have galaxies. You have this whole complex creation in the science of it, okay? That's what, hold all that. Yeah. Now, in every molecule, in every process, not only do we have the structure and the biochemistry, mm-hmm. but there's also a message of God that is simultaneously present also in every single element of creation. And he got it and he teared <laughs> up and he said, Lisanne, God is so much bigger than I ever imagined. Whoa. Because think of every single structure. If you if you had any science course at all, you know how intricate those details of science are. Every one of those not only holds its structure to function the way it does, yeah. but something about its character, its quality, or its function has a biblical spiritual truth attached to it, yeah. embedded in it. Wow. Everything. Yep. 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 Guess, it just gives what well, gives a whole new purpose to science too, and a whole new understanding for why we like to watch the Discovery Channel, why it even exists, right? Why are we as humans so curious about right. non-human things? We're reading the mind of God. Yeah. Yep. That's so good. Now, so, but let's just change directions a little bit. Now, right. I know that um, that you've got another book coming out and a few other projects you're working on. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit more about about uh, about those. Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, the two books, one is The Great and Remarkable Analogy Book, which is a really using Edwards as the main conversation partner in that book, using yeah. Edwards' So that's writings. what we've been discussing, right? right? People want to hear all the details about this process and the history behind it and the theology behind it. Mm-hmm. Great and Remarkable Analogy. Right. And yeah. so that was sort of the treatise on how we can understand nature as this this analogia, this analogy of spiritual things. And then the second book is called A Trinitarian Theology of Nature. Mm-hmm. And what this is more of, um, this is more of a metaphysical approach. It uses lots of different theologians and voices from both the Catholic and the Protestant traditions where we say, do we see the, in the Christian tradition, we understand God in terms of um, a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, right? Three in one. Mm-hmm. That sort of mystical, non-mathematical construct that nobody can really figure out, right? Yeah. And so we look at God in his Trinitarian nature, and how do we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in nature? Is it just God, or do we see God from a Christian perspective um, in the foundations of, of the Christian of the, of the natural world? Yeah. And so that's the second book. Um, and in that, I put forth a threefold theology. So there's a theology of nature, a Christology of nature, and a pneumatology of nature, showing how all three persons of the Trinity are acting coordinatedly and simultaneously to present to us the reality that we live in every day. Yeah. Okay, and so that is really um, more of an in-depth analysis of how God's doing it. Yeah. How is God working? How do we understand? We encounter God, but what is what is God doing on God's end of it? Yeah. Right to reach out to us. That's a Trinitarian theology of nature book. And then um, and these are, if I can yeah. give you a little plug, uh, sure. the preface for both of these is written by Alistair McGrath, who we've talked about in this podcast before, who I admire yes. so much and has given us insights into this intersection of science and faith beyond just you know the origins debate and all that stuff but just what can we learn of god through creation alistair mcgrath is a wonderful colleague of mine um very dear friend and he um right he is the director of uh, science and religion at oxford university and uh sat on my dissertation committee i was very fortunate and blessed to have him uh 
speaking into my work in that way. And um, so, yeah, so we were, I was very blessed to have him uh, write the foreword of the book. Yeah, that's great. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you there. Now, do you mm-hmm. have any other projects that we should know about? I do. Yes, I do. I have um, two books that are more for, I mean, the, the two books I just mentioned, uh, they're readable for anybody, um, but I'm writing two other books that are more for a generalized popular audience, hopefully to get into the church. Yep. So one of them is called A God for the Contemporary Age. And this is a book on how we can engage the creator through the creation. It is a um, spirituality and the environment type of book and how we can come to God, what are the practices that we can do, um, how can we deepen our spirituality through engaging in the natural world, who (laughs) is this God and how do we engage that God. And that's a God for the contemporary age. I also, in that book, I also review um, just some of some of the, a little bit of the history of formalized religion, where it has helped us and where it's let us down. A lot of people have really been let down by mm-hmm. religion. Yep. Um, and, and how do we take what's good from those, you know, thousands to 2,000 years or more, <laughs> you know, certainly in the Christian faith, 2,000 years, but more than that for other religions. And how do we take what's good and how can we move past some of the damaging aspects yep. of organized religion. That's God for the Contemporary Age. And then the other book that I'm writing is um, entitled Where to Find Peace in an Age of Terror. Hmm. Um, we live in an age where we are surrounded by terrorism everywhere we go. Yeah. And people are afraid and people are hiding. And people use the internet, they use social media, they use our devices. We're, we're separate from one another in so many ways. And the word safety comes up everywhere yeah, uh, in yeah. personal relationships in families i don't yeah. feel safe i don't like Places, so yeah. yeah exactly and even getting on an airplane i mean like everywhere we go we are unsafe and so where do we go as human beings how do we find safety again and so there are eight very simple resolutions in that book that will guide people to places in their life where they can find genuine and authentic peace and safety in their lives. Mm. And these are based on um, spiritual principles as Mm. well. Wonderful. Uh, So thanks so much for your time. This has been really interesting and insightful. Thank Uh, you, Dale. I I think people will get a lot out of it. Where can people find you? Do you have, uh, are you available on social media or do you have a website? I do. I have an Instagram site, which is a, really, it's a uh, biology and theology Instagram site. It's called Urchin Poet. That's (laughs) my Urchin Poet Instagram. So visit me there and you'll see lots of critters and creatures from all over the world and my backyard as well <laughs> on there and lots of good um, inspirational writings from lots of different theologies. Uh, I also have a website here at University of Northwestern, my mm-hmm. faculty webpage, and a Wikipedia page soon to be coming out. Oh, so look wonderful. for that. Great. Well, thanks for your time, Lisanne. This has, again, been really wonderful. Uh, Thank we'll, you. we'll have to have you back again soon when mm-hmm. those next books come out. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. Disciple Science is a crowdfunded nonprofit that's exploring the intersection of faith and science. We just released a new video on Christianity and evolution, and we'll begin to explore that topic in the podcast next week. We're also hard at work on two more videos, one on how to ease the tension between science and Christianity, and another on what the Christian gospel has to say about environmental stewardship. We hope all these resources will help you see a vision for how the study of nature can be a valuable contribution to your walk with Jesus. We want to make everything available completely free, but we need your help to make that happen. You can support the artists that are making these videos right now by donating via the support button on the DiscipleScience.com website. 
There you can also explore the rest of our resources, sign up for our newsletter, and send us feedback about what you want to hear more about in the future. You can also help by rating and sharing our videos and podcasts and telling your friends about Disciple Science. I want to thank a few of our donors for their support of our mission. Christine Johnson, Dallas Fontenot, Curtis and Margot Eaton, Bo and Robin Anjami, Nate and Jill Carey, and my wonderful parents, James and Barbara Gentry. Thanks for your support, Mom and Dad. I also want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.